Welcome back, my friends, to AA Recovery Interviews. I'm your host, Howard L., sober since January 1st, 1988, one day at a time. I'm grateful that you're listening. My guest today, Bob B., is widely known as one of the elder statesmen among the people in my AA community. At 88 years of age and 47 years sober, Bob's journey on the road of happy destiny has taken many turns along the way. From hopelessness and desperation in the beginning, through teachability and humility throughout the years, Bob's sobriety was challenged by pride, ego, and self-centeredness along the way, even in the midst of helping suffering alcoholics. But his spiritual awakening and reliance upon his higher power was ever-evolving during those many years, ultimately casting a bright golden light upon those dim regions of fear and doubt that affect us alcoholics, no matter how long we've been sober. That illumination transformed and enriched Bob's sobriety and his continuous service to AA. When I first met Bob 33 years ago, he was a scary guy, sharing in meetings about getting shot and knifed down in seedy bars on the waterfront. But as I've gotten to know him, his story of growth in the program has taken on new context and meaning. It's both cautionary and instructive, but it's also entertaining. As a recovering drunk with an enduring message to share, Bob's story, bolstered by service work and his love for other AAs, has endeared him to several generations of recovering alcoholics. He's been a big part of my recovery, and whether you've known Bob for years or are meeting him for the first time on this podcast, I believe you'll be captivated during the next 90 minutes. And so, I am pleased to welcome Bob B. to AA Recovery Interviews. My name is Bob B., and I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Bob. I'm so glad you could be here so we can share this with all of your fans, not only here, but around the country and around the world. You've got a big day coming up on Monday, don't you? Yes, I do. That'll be my 47th AA birthday. God, that's incredible. When you were newer in sobriety, what did you think about guys who had that much time? First place, I didn't know anybody that had that much time. I came into Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, Several years ago, obviously, 47, it's actually 49 years I came in. But uh, the most people we had with over 30 years of sobriety in Houston mm -hmm. uh, in about, uh, oh, I don't remember what year it was. It was in the early years, but there were only three of them. Hmm. Uh, you know, today we just got 30 years and 40 years. And I, I know a fellow that has got 53 years. So the program has grown. So you got sober in 1974 and 47 years ago, almost to the day. That'll be on Monday. So I'd like to start with kind of the backstory a little bit and and just what, what kind of things do you remember about your early years when you were a kid in home life and how that might have affected or put you on the path to becoming an alcoholic? My, my early home life, I was born during the Depression in 1932. Mm-hmm. And uh, like everybody, not everybody, but a lot of people uh, were suffering from financial uh, problems. And, and my parents had a uh, grocery store and my mother was a very soft touch and she sold a lot of groceries on time, mm -hmm. but they had to pay cash for them. And so they went broke in the store. Mm. And uh, although my mother had a college degree, she received from Trinity University in San Antonio in 1913. Mm -hmm. uh, she took a job as a cook in a cafe mm -hmm. and uh, then worked part-time as a uh, domestic doing whatever she could just to feed the 
family. And, mm-hmm. and uh, my father was an itinerant house painter and did an awful lot of fishing and hunting. So mm. what it, it caused me, the problem it caused me was with my father and the fact that I didn't think he tried to work. And mm. it left me with a bitter uh, resentment. Mm-hmm. But I also found a lot of things with me later on, way later on in my AA that that changed a lot of what I thought was happening at that time. Mm. Yes, there was a lot of the first part of my life that that affected the way I functioned as a person mm-hmm. in society. Yeah, um, I, I'd like to give you an example if I could. I was a sure. I was a victim. There were groups of boys that. Uh, as they would say in the mafia, made their bones off of me because mm-hmm. I would run home and cry and, and my mother would baby me and call the police and call the principal and my father would whip me and make me go out and fight those boys again. Mm-hmm. And uh, mm-hmm. one day I hit one of the boys in the head with a, with a rock and he was on the ground that was crying and rolling over and and uh, had to have bandages and I saw that as a solution to my victim. Huh. So I went the other way and that turned out to be just as bad as a victim. I became a, a really small bully. Yeah. That's quite a lesson to learn at such a young age. You mentioned that your, your dad, uh, he was itinerant, uh, but hunting and fishing. Did, did you get any of those gifts from him? Did he ever take you along? Yeah. That was one of the things that were so wonderful with my father. I learned I went and made a lot of hunting and fishing trips with my dad. Mm. And, and, uh, that was the part that I really loved mm. about my father was that, yeah. that he was, he, he had a, a, a rage problem himself, but at the same time, uh, you know, he took me hunting and fishing and, and, uh, I had a great time with him. I was just going to ask, did alcohol contribute to any of that rage or was he an alcoholic from your point of view? No, my, I never saw my father nor my mother either one take a drink of any alcohol. Hmm. Uh, my father said the reason he didn't drink alcohol, it made him mean. Mm-hmm. And I'd be a witness to the fact he didn't need anything else to make him mean. Oh, gee. <laughs> wow. So uh, there wasn't alcohol around your house when you were a kid. No, there, there was no alcohol whatsoever, except my brother. Mm-hmm. I, I had a brother that was 16 years older than me, and, mm-hmm. and uh, he, he drank and came in drunk. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he and my father didn't get along. Mm-hmm. And uh, this brother uh, later went into the military service like all guys his age mm-hmm. and went to the South Pacific and was killed. Mm-hmm. But I never had a chance to to know him. Yeah. I only remember probably four or five incidences in his life, mm-hmm. but he was a, a drinking person, but I do remember going down with my daddy to get him out of jail because he'd get in fights and, and be arrested and put in jail. And my father wanted to humiliate him. And mm-hmm. so he took me down there and it, he ended up humiliating my brother and I both, mm-hmm. but he really was a, uh, he was a very tall, very good-looking athletic. I compared myself to him most of my life, except that I'm short, not athletic, mm-hmm. and uh, didn't think that I was as good as he was. Yeah. And I picked that up mm-hmm. because my father said that. He told me, he said, well, 
you know, that's my brother would have done so-and-so. When your brother was killed, were your parents still alive at that time? Yes, yes, they were still alive. They were separated. My father was working at a shipyard in Beaumont. Uh-huh. And the rest of the family, mother, my sisters and I lived, were in Kerrville. Mm-hmm. And uh, my daddy came home. That was in 1943. And my daddy came home and and uh, spent time. In fact, he never went back to Beaumont mm-hmm. for the job in the shipyard. Mm-hmm. Uh, he began painting an occasional house around the Kerrville area where I was raised. And we would take that money and go fishing or hunting. My father, strangely enough, never spanked me or physically abused me. Really? Uh, I You got to realize where I came along in my family. Yeah. Uh, My mother was 42 when I was born. Mm -hmm. And so she really didn't want me. She tried to abort her pregnancy. And in doing that, Mm -hmm. uh, she couldn't get that done. So she passed me on to a sister to raise that was just older than me. Mm Mm-hmm. And that didn't work when my sister started to school. So she sent me to live with an aunt in Pearsall. Mm-hmm. And uh, the one thing that I wanted was to go back and be with my family. Mm-hmm. And I was willing to live by myself from the time I was four years old. It it, it put a, a very big scar on me. Mm-hmm. But at the time, I just wanted to be with my family. I see. I see. So uh, you have your older brother and you. How many other siblings did you, did you have? Then I had three sisters. Three sisters. That, yeah, we were in between my brother and I. Uh, one was five years older than me. One was 10 years older than me. Uh-huh. And one was 15 years older than me. Wow. Okay. So it's hard to get to know siblings when there's such a large age gap. I, I, for all practical purposes, I was an only child. Huh. So the hope always was for me with my older brother and sister, and I think it did turn out this way. My older brother got the worst of my dad. My older sister was a hippie, and through all of that, you know, the crazy 60s, uh, by the time my parents got to me, they'd been kind of uh, numbed over (laughs) by the antics of my brother and sister. So I got to do a lot of whatever it was I wanted to do because they had already gotten smoothed out by the the other two siblings. Uh, There you go. That's exactly what happened to me. So when did you first take a drink or what was your first uh, experience with drinking? The very, very first experience was when I was four years old. Mm. My brother had uh, brewed up some uh, homemade wine and and, uh, he and his friends got drunk while my mother was at work and he fed me this uh, homemade wine and I was funny and laughed and had the center of attention and I liked that. Uh, but I, I that was not uh, my doing. My brother just, you know, I was just sure. a child and mm-hmm. I would have done anything he wanted me to do just to get attention from mm-hmm. him. So that was at four, but when was it that you encountered alcohol that you, you on your own? I, on my own, and that's the important date. That's, I was 18. 18. Uh, I played high school football, and, and uh, I, I never was a good football player. I wasn't a good athlete. I wasn't like my brother. Uh-huh. And I was short and small, and my brother was tall and athletic and good at it. And so I compared myself as a loser to him because he had all the things that the girls wanted. And I didn't have, I didn't feel like at the time I had what girls wanted, but at any rate, uh, 
my brother really wanted me to be an athlete, but I just never could get around to doing it. Mm-hmm. And he went off to war and died, but he left a scrapbook for me about a team there in Kerrville that was successful. Mm-hmm. And so I compared myself to him and to them. Mm-hmm. And that, and I didn't start drinking until right after that. After the season was over, then I started drinking. Mm-hmm. And I got on my first drunk when I was 18. We got some whiskey. And, and unbelievably, I got caught by the superintendent of the school system with the bottles of whiskey. And I explained to him that they were for my father. Oh, and uh, so I got out of it with a lie. Actually, I didn't, but that's another story. Wow. But anyway, uh, we went out and got drunk, and uh, mm-hmm. I couldn't get sober. I stayed hmm. drunk all night and finally sobered up. I was very sick. Mm-hmm. And I found out I'd done the three things that I always do when I drink. I got drunk, I got sick, and I got in trouble because I kicked in the side of a friend's car that was with me getting drunk. Oh, no. Wow. So the first time you do that, you get caught and you get drunk and you cause damage. <laughs> That's right. And you get sick, right? I get that. So what were your thoughts after that? Did you did you race to do it again, or did you have some hesitancy about drinking? No, I I, I hear people talk about that. I, I came from a family that didn't have any money. Mm. And so after the season was, I started working at a part-time job. Uh-huh. I, I needed, I only had a set amount of money, what I earned. And so mm-hmm. I really mm-hmm. didn't care that much about drinking. And so what I did was I used that money to date girls huh. and uh, I didn't have a car. The family didn't have a car. And so uh, I would uh, work it out with a guy that I would buy the gasoline if he let me double date with him. Huh. And so we did that. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just didn't drink. The night I graduated high school, I got real drunk mm-hmm. and uh, got in a trouble again because I cussed out the pre- vice president of the large bank in town <laughs> and uh, got in a fight mm-hmm. and uh, ended up getting sick. And I got up the next morning and left Kerrville to go to South Texas to Roughneck. Hmm. So your trajectory wasn't one of starting to drink and continuing after that first drink? No. How many years was it or how long was it after that? Well, I, I, what I did was I, I drank occasionally uh, until I was about 34. Uh-huh. Okay. And in those occasions, I got the same thing. I got drunk, I got in trouble, and I got sick. Hmm. And I, but it didn't, I, I didn't drink alcoholically. Hmm. I, and it was because I I was in a business I was trying to succeed in, mm-hmm. and I spent more time failing than I did succeeding, but I wouldn't accept the failure that I got in that time I spent mm-hmm. trying to be a success. But when I got to be a success, a financial success, mm-hmm. and a success with the people that I associated with, mm-hmm both in that industry and not in just people that I made friends with mm-hmm. in the bars. And I began to drink on a daily basis at age 34. Mm. And uh, I still got the same thing. I still got sick. I still got in trouble and, and in a fight generally. Right. Because my brother was a fighter. Yeah. And so a case I decided 
that I, I didn't want boys to pick on me like they did, uh-huh. then I had to be a fighter. And so I got in a lot of fights as an adult uh-huh. over 34 years old. So the alcohol made that, that possible for you. Uh, would, were you a fighter when you weren't drunk? Yes, but okay. not 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 uh, not near as as often. Mm-hmm. In other words, uh, between say uh, eighteen and and uh, and thirty four, I may have gotten in five or ten fights. But after that, it was a pretty regular thing that I got in some kind of physical trouble. Maybe it was just a pushing incident, and people broke us up, or maybe it was in a bar or a restaurant where they didn't allow that, and so they kicked me out. Hmm. But I still uh, got drunk and I, I got in trouble and I got sick. So would you say then that, that between 18 and 34, when you started to drink regularly, you were a binge drinker? Yeah, you could say I was a binge drinker, but I always associate binge drinking with a, a long period. What I did when I would get drunk, I'd get in trouble and I'd get sick over one night. Oh, okay. And I didn't have any long periods where I, I got drunk and I stayed drunk for three or four days or a week uh-huh. or a month. I, I remember I'm still trying to be successful in that mm-hmm. that in that business. In mm-hmm. addition to that, I had a wife and and three small children, and and I was not financially successful. I I didn't mm-hmm. I couldn't provide for them the things that I felt like my family hadn't provided for me. Hmm. And so I, I didn't waste money on a lot of drunks mm-hmm. like I consider a, a binge drinker with. Hmm. I, I was an overnight binge drinker, I guess you could say. Yeah, I, I get that. So whenever this was going on with your family where you felt like you couldn't provide for them as well as you were provided for and so forth, lots of times those are the reasons why people want to drink is to get through those kind of feelings and or to take themselves out of that situation for some relief. What, what was that like for you? Well, you you see what I did, I was working in this business, this industry. Uh And, and so I would fail. Yeah. And then, but when I failed, all I did was just put the pieces back together again Mm -hmm. and go get another contract and start back over with another company. I see. And, and I didn't see drinking as a solution for anything. Hmm. When I got drunk, the times I got drunk, I was with somebody who was drinking. Yeah. Uh, I I just I just I wasn't drinking alcoholically. Hmm. So you know I I, I was it wasn't a solution to me. I, I I couldn't get drunk and go believe I was really great. Mm-hmm. You know what I did was I got drunk and then got sober and went back out and kept working. Mm-hmm. I wasn't a binge drinker as I see a binge drinker today. You're married at that time. You're raising three children. How close in age were the three kids? Well, my wife and I got married in 1955, and we had one daughter in 1956, and we had another daughter in 1957. We didn't have another child until uh, the oldest child was eight. Oh, okay. I see. So there's a little bit of a gap between the older of the two girls. Yeah, and- only because my wife couldn't get pregnant. She had a miscarriage in there. We wanted to have our children early. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So we we're going to have all of them in a bunch, raise them, become successful, and then 
go do what we wanted to. Sounds like the American dream. Um. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was a nightmare. You got to remember nightmares are dreams as well as what we call dreams. Yeah, well said. So what was life like at home for you with your wife and kids over this period of time when you were trying to get yourself established and and successful? We had a very tight family. Uh-huh. Uh, we did a lot of things together. We didn't have any money so that we couldn't go out and and uh, say goes to Disneyland or Six Flags over Texas. Uh-huh. Uh, what we did do was we did went to local situations, the beach. We went to uh, mm-hmm. park up the state park up at Sealy. Mm-hmm. We'd go up into the hill country because my yeah. family still lived there, my mother and father. Mm-hmm. So how long did they live? My, my parents both died within six months in 1968. Mm. And so I was about 35 or 36. They didn't see any of my alcoholism. They didn't see any of my al- alcoholic drinking. And they didn't do, see the side of effects I got into that I thought went with the success I wanted. Yeah. There are a lot of other people involved in this. And so I don't want to bring up those those situations. Other as my part in it was. And, and it, it, it involved a lot of... Uh, a lot of living like I never had done. Yeah. I spent all my time doing either uh, working or drunk or out running the streets. And I spent a, mm. I spent a lot of time in bars. Yeah. Uh, my wife stayed home with the kids. Right. And she raised the children. And uh, that was a period of time when I was an absentee father almost well, my drinking was really bad. That was the turning point that you mentioned earlier that uh, at age 34. Age 34, I began drinking alcoholically. By age 35, I was a chronic alcoholic. Mm-hmm. And age 36, 37, I practiced alcoholism. And then, uh, in, and, and I ran some streets that most people don't. Sure. The west side of Houston in in those days closed up at midnight. Yeah. But the east side of Houston uh, remained wild and crazy. And so Mm -hmm. I went over there and went to bars where people like me didn't go because we just weren't welcome over there. But I went over there anyway. Hmm. I won't say I fit in, but I, I, I will say this is a time when one of my fights got me shot and stabbed hmm. and I almost died. But that didn't stop my alcoholism. Mm-hmm. When I uh, when I recovered from being shot and stabbed, I had gone bankrupt. I uh, was broke because I was overextended in what I did and spent all my money, mm-hmm. and I didn't save anything. And so when I couldn't work for a period of time, I lost my mm. house and and. Uh, all my investments I had, I lost them. Wow. I was now a chronic alcoholic and didn't know it. I, as long as I was under surgery, they had to cut into me and mm-hmm. fix my arm. Yeah. Uh, I didn't drink. So I got shot in in, um, in October of 1969. Uh-huh. And in April of 1970, uh, I was finally mm-hmm. patched up. And I immediately went back to the drinking pattern I'd had before. At the time that you were shot and stabbed, did you come to any realizations during your convalescence of, uh, or any, did you draw any connection between <laughs> alcohol and what had happened to you? 
No, of course not. Yeah. It wasn't my fault. I, as an alcoholic, mm-hmm. uh, I, I didn't even blame the people who shot me. Hmm. I, I blamed uh, the system that we live in today that, you know, that they didn't have more patrolmen in that part of town. Mm-hmm. People like me didn't go in that part of town. I'd be the only person in sight. Mm-hmm. And people used to like to go with me because, mm-hmm. you see, I was I was not brave enough. I was crazy enough I would go over there. Yeah. And they would go over there with me, and they were terrified, and that would make me feel tough and strong. And I, you, you don't do what I did in that part of town. Yeah. And not end up and get shot. Now, once you were all patched up and you had gotten better and you were back to your antics, did you start to feel uh, bulletproof when you went back there? Or, or were you more wary of what was going to happen? What was your attitude? Of course I was bulletproof. I'd just been shot and stabbed <laughs> and lived over it. It had anything to do with the, with, with the doctor and all the people who yeah. patched me up. It was me. I lived over it. What, was, what were you thinking at the time? What were your thoughts about God in your life at that time? I told, kept telling him to get off my back and leave me alone. Mm-hmm. I'd run my part of the world, and he could run his part of the world, but he was really messing up mine. I was very active in the church mm-hmm. until I was 34 years old. I was a very active mm-hmm. Christian. And w- one of the reasons I left the church, I gave her the reason was uh, because I didn't believe that they were running the church right. The truth was I wanted to go out and do some things, but I couldn't face those people uh-huh. on Sunday morning and get up there and, and share with them my relationship with God. Mm-hmm. Because by then I didn't have a relationship with God. I had a relationship with a devil. A devil born out of self-will, right? Exactly, exactly what it was. It was my devil that I created. Yeah, I get that. So God wasn't, he was on the sidelines while while you were healing yourself. No, he wasn't on the sidelines. He was there with me. I uh, I actually died. Did you? I actually died when I was shot and the doctor gave up on me. And he said something much bigger than me saved you. He said, I, I don't believe in God, but something much bigger than saved me. So I had a testimony that that God saved my life for some abstract reason. I can't figure out what. At that time, I couldn't figure out what it was. Yeah. But he had some ideas that he wanted to talk to me about yeah. a little later, and so he kept me breathing. How much time passed between when you were over the gunshot wound and the stab wound till you got to the point, that turning point, where things were so out of control or unmanageable in your life that you finally sought some help? Five years. Five years. Yes. So from 34 to 39 or 40. That was how long that I continued to drink. Yeah. And say that I saved myself. Yeah. I really uh, have a horrible problem with arrogance and self-centeredness. But the whole time I was doing that, from time to time, I would get in a, a vicious cussing contest with God that, you know, if he just leave me alone, that I could get back to where I wanted to be. Mm-hmm. And from time to time, I did get financially where I wanted to be. Mm-hmm. But then I'd get drunk and ruin the whole thing. So who won those cussing contests? I'm just curious. God, God always yeah. wins. <laughs> In the end, isn't that oh, true? Oh, yeah. Isn't yeah, that true? yeah. So what was, was there a particular event or happening in your life 
that was the turning point or the sudden moment of clarity, or was it a gradual movement in that direction? What happened was in, in uh, April 19th, uh, my wife, who was trying to get me sober, mm-hmm. uh, I was drunk, and, and, and we spent the last money we had mm-hmm. uh, on uh, alcohol to, mm-hmm. to for lunch. We didn't eat a lunch. Yeah. And she said, will you take me to AA? And I was drunk enough. I said, hell, I'll take you anywhere you want to go. So I took her to AA and, and, uh, uh, my wife at that time was a, a beautiful woman. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, everybody in AA at this place, we ended up mm-hmm. wanted her to get sober, but they weren't interested in me getting sober. They wanted me to shut up because <laughs> I, uh, you can tell I have a kind of motor mouth, but, uh, I, I took her home and I said, I'm going to quit drinking, but I don't need AA to quit drinking. Hmm. And so I uh, drank for off and on, oh, until May. And I came in one day in May and all our camping gear was in the middle of the den floor. And I said, what is this? And she said, I'm going to Austin and take the kids. I'm going to camp in a park Hmm. till uh, I find a job and we don't want to be around you anymore. Oh my! And goodness. so I said, "Look, I'll do anything. I'll go to AA." And she said, "Will you quit drinking?" And I said, "And I'll quit drinking. I'll go to AA." Because see, I knew deep down inside of me, I needed her to keep me going. Yeah, she kept my life together. Yeah, I wouldn't admit it. You couldn't ask me, mm-hmm. but she kept my life together while I was practicing alcoholism. Yeah, the getting shot and all of that. She kept me alive and kept me going. And deep down inside, I knew that. Mm-hmm. And so I mm-hmm. couldn't let her go. And I said, I'll, I'll, I'll go to AA. And so I went to AA. It was yeah. May the 12th of 1971. Mm-hmm. And uh, mm-hmm. I went to meetings and I didn't drink. And I hated every minute of it. I thought you people were all full of baloney and that all you did was talk about God. Yeah. I knew more about God and all y'all did because I knew about everything than anybody did. Mm-hmm. I, uh, my wife again was still very beautiful. And, 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 uh, if I ever shut up, well, you know, they'd tolerate me just to have her around. Mm-hmm. And so I stayed sober until June of that year. Mm-hmm. And I had to have, uh, my spleen removed. Mm-hmm. And so I went into the hospital and I had my spleen removed mm-hmm. and I came out and, uh, I, I didn't go back to AA meetings and she commented on it. And I used the big book. I, I, uh, hmm. I'm a user of books and people if I get a chance. And so I find in the big book where it says some people uh, can stop drinking without Alcoholics Anonymous. Yeah. I didn't read what was around it. Yeah. It said, uh, you know, it's, it's practically impossible for an alcoholic to quit drinking without Alcoholics Anonymous. Yeah. And she said, well, you know, I've seen you overcome everything. Mm-hmm. She really loved me, you know. She, So we we didn't go to AA. And and then in September, I'll, I'll never forget this as long as I live. I mm-hmm. met a client in a bar. I wasn't drinking, remember? And I sat down for papers for him to sign. And he looked up to the waitress and he said, uh, I tell you what, I want a Wellers and water. I had no idea what Wellers was, but I said, I'll take one too. 
So huh. I drank one and I got up and I left and I went home and my wife said, you've been drinking. I said, I had one drink. Hmm. I said, that's mm-hmm. because I'm like the big book says, some of us could overcome alcoholism, even, even drink. Wow. And she said, well, that's marvelous. And the next day, uh, I lost that overcoming alcohol without help from Alcoholics Anonymous. And for the next, oh, from from uh, September, whatever that was, the 15th, say, mm-hmm. until uh, uh, December the 3rd, uh, I practiced my alcoholism again. Mm-hmm. And uh, she went to AA. And, and, and I don't, you know, I got to tell you what, right in there, this is kind of a fuzzy part of my alcoholism. Yeah. I remember a lot of waking up. And I remember a lot of passing out. Yeah. And it only took about two or three drinks to knock me out. Mm. I used to be able to drink a fifth or whatever that I I drank. Mm-hmm. But now I couldn't drink hardly any alcohol because I was in my depths of my alcoholism and didn't even know it. When you went back to drinking to satisfy your wife's demand that you stop and so forth, did she renew that threat for you? Or did were you able to convince her that you were the guy who could stay sober without AA and she bought that? What was that circumstance? No, what I, what I did was I, I convinced her she, she and the kids needed to stay in the house. I said, you know, if if I reach a point where I'm so obnoxious that mm-hmm. that you just want to get rid of me, I'll 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 move out. I see. And I never will forget. I uh, I came in and knocked on the door, and and uh, I I didn't have a key. Mm-hmm. I'd lost my my wife took my key. Yeah. So I knocked on the door, and she came to the door, and she said, "You've been drinking." Yeah. And I said, "Yeah, but I just want to." I quit tomorrow. She said, "No, either you leave." And come back sober or don't come back. Hmm. So I went to a motel and checked into the motel. And then I realized I didn't have my dog. So I uh-huh. went back and told her that I wanted my dog. Uh-huh. And uh, I got my dog and we went to a motel. And a couple of hours later, the dog wanted to go home. So I took the dog home and and then I ran out of money. Uh-huh. And and she by then had, had gotten a job. Uh-huh. And uh, I was, uh, I, I didn't have any money at all. I, I will yeah. tell you one story that lives vividly, vividly in my mind. At that time, Falstaff beer cost 35 cents a can. Yeah. Or a bottle. Uh-huh. Sure. And uh, there was a an A-frame beer joint at the corner where Westheimer moves into Elgin, you know. And yeah. I went in and I ordered me a, a Falstaff beer and uh-huh. gave him my 35 cents. Now, I don't know whether it's blackout drinking or not, but between the time that I got my Falstaff beer and and took a drink of it, the people who the customers in that bar threw me out in the parking lot. Hmm. And I told them, I said, do you know who you've done this to? And they said, I won't put all the words in there, but they said, yeah, yeah. we won't, uh, we just don't care who we've done this to, but you can't mm-hmm. come in this bar where we drink. Oh, so wow. that was the kind of situation I had. And uh, mm-hmm. I went home and I told her, I said, uh, I'm willing to go to Alcoholics Anonymous. And she said, we've tried this. You don't stay sober. 
Yeah. And I said, well, I want to call them and have some of these guys come and get me. Now you got to remember this is in night, this particular incident's happening in 1971 and there are no treatment centers. Now there are no treatment centers. Uh huh. And so I call this guy in AA and he and another guy came out and they my wife, she is a lovely lady, and she usually didn't use profanity, but right. I can't say what she said. He said, we're going to take Bob. She said, I don't care where you take him. I just get him out of my house. And so on that, I went out and got in a car, and we're driving along, and, and I said, uh, where are you guys taking me? And they said, the 24-hour club. Yeah. And I thought, that's a club, so that's a private club. That's back where you couldn't get a drink over a bar. Uh-huh. And, and so I said uh, uh, that to myself, I said, well, they're taking me out here to a club where it's really got nice low lights and so forth. They're going to take me in this club and they're going to buy me a drink. So on the way over to this club, they're taking me to, they got lost. Uh-huh. The 24 hour club is out near the docks. Mm-hmm. So they dumped me off in there and I had my luggage with me. I bought me some luggage at, Kroger's. In fact, it was a paper sack with Kroger <laughs> on the side of it. And it had all of everything I possessed in the world. Wow. Some underwear and cigarettes and socks. Mm-hmm. And I walked up to that place and those were the meanest people I have ever seen in my life. Hmm. Now you got to remember, I've been down there, gotten shot and stabbed and everything else, but those people, the shooters and the stabbers, were not as mean as the people in the 24-hour club. I walked in and they said, sit on the couch and shut up. Mm-hmm. And I said, you don't understand who I am. And they said, we really don't care. They were going to throw me out the front door. Yeah. I said, I need to get the, said, no, what about want? Do you want to get sober? And I said, yeah, I really do want to get sober. And they said, shut up again. Yeah. And I was sitting there next to a guy that, he was a big longshoreman, must have weighed 300 pounds. Uh-huh. And he was just cold, knocked out. Hmm. And he stood up and he fell out in the floor. I don't mean he put his hands out. I mean, he just fell into the floor. Mm-hmm. And and I, I, I thought, you know, you need to call the, the ambulance. And nobody even got up. Hmm. They were talking and nobody quit talking. They were telling their stories around that round table over there. And this guy's turning gray. He's getting ready to turn blue. Mm-hmm. And finally somebody called the, the, uh, the medics and, and mm-hmm. uh, I'm sitting there looking at him and this guy walks up and I said, what's wrong with him? He said, he's got alcoholism. Mm-hmm. And I said, what? He said, he's got alcoholism. It either kills you, put you in prison or put you in a hospital. Mm-hmm. But that's all the choice you got. Now, what choice do you want? And I, with all my brilliance, said, I want to get sober. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Now, today I might choose one of those others. Oh, <laughs> I yeah. I didn't know what they had ahead for me. And so in four hours, they took me up and they said, go over and sit around that three, that foot round table and uh, get you a cup of coffee. And, and when mm-hmm. you get through, Keep your mouth shut and see if you can learn something about staying sober. About then they came in and they got that three hundred pound seaman and he's dead. Dead. I mean, I'm not. I'm not making this up. Mm-hmm. 
he's dead. Mm. And they took him out. And I said, what's he doing? He said, he died. Mm. He's a lucky one. Mm. So then I sat around that table all day and I never will forget as long as I live. The guy that started the 24 hours, the name Tuffy, because the way he lived. Mm-hmm. Anyway, uh, Tuffy comes walking around and he said, well, Bob, uh, you learn anything about staying sober? And I said, no, Mr. Tuffy, I haven't learned anything about staying sober. And he said, uh, what time is it? Mm-hmm. And I said, I don't know. They looked the clock on the wall. I said, it's six o'clock. He said, what time do you sit here at this round table? I said, two o'clock. He said, works, don't it? So I hadn't <laughs> had a drink for eight hours. And far as Tuffy was concerned, I was sober. Huh. Now, the huh. book doesn't talk this way, but let me tell you what. On the waterfront, Mr. Tuffy tells it how it is. They haven't got the big book yet. Yeah, yeah. So I sat there, and uh, I got sober, and uh, I hated every minute. We'll be right back. My friends, if you're enjoying this show, I invite you to check out the Big Book Podcast, the free audio version of the first and second editions of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's an engaging and inspiring word-for-word reading of all 11 chapters and personal stories, including more than 50 original stories that were left out of the third and fourth editions. If you've never read the first or second editions, these amazing stories will be brand new to you. The Big Book Podcast is read by Howard L., who receives no compensation for this vital service work. Subscribe to the Big Book Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and search for Big Book Podcast. You'll know you've arrived when you see our logo, a first edition Big Book wearing headphones. Or you can visit BigBookPodcast.com and listen there and share it with your friends, sponsees, and anyone you know who has a desire to stop drinking. It may be the only version of the big book they ever hear. And we're back. So the 24-hour club, and I've, I've been there. I've actually told my story before down there, and it's an, it's an amazing place. Uh, in what ways was it different than the AA that you had been exposed to prior to that with your wife, those meetings that you went to? What was there about the, the 24-hour club that seemed to make AA stick? The, the prior club I stopped. I first went to is called Travis Club, mm-hmm. but that this was really nice AA. Everybody wore suits to meetings and and uh, uh-huh. and nice dresses and and everything was nice and and they had talked really nice to my wife and and uh, come to think of it, when she got twenty four hour club, they talked nice to her too. Everybody talked nice to my wife and nobody seemed to be interested in me, but. Mm-hmm. Uh, they said, okay, your job now is to run the 24-hour club from 11 o'clock in the evening until 7 o'clock the next morning. Hmm. You're responsible for the whole they, – they didn't give me any money. Don't misunderstand me. That was, right, right. That was in a steel box. Yeah. But I had to make coffee for all those people. And here at 3 and 4 in the morning, they were coming in there and, and out there at the 24-hour club – you can't come there but once. Right. And so uh, a guy would come in and he would say, I want to get sober. And, and they'd say, no, you can't stay. And I never will forget a guy came in one time and mm-hmm. he said, uh, I just want to get sober. Tuffy. I'm dying. And 
Duffy said, yeah, you really are, but you can't stay. Mm. And he walked out the door and I said, Duffy, that guy's going to die. And Tuffy said, yeah, and he'll quit drinking when he does. <laughs> yeah. Now, that's a kind of uh, yeah. tough love that they mm-hmm. had in the 24-hour club. Sure. Which was exactly what Bob needed at that time. Yeah, I get that. So sooner or later, everybody quits drinking. But what you're saying is for some people, it takes death. That's right. Between that time, it sounds like you were being paid in sobriety for working there. What happened between... Uh, between that time and the sobriety date of uh, January 25th, 1974. I got out of the 24-hour club after 10 days, and I went home, and and, uh, my wife had completely screwed up my financial affairs. Mm -hmm. Uh, She said it's because she didn't have any money because I hadn't worked for so long. Mm -hmm. And I said she mismanaged it, but I found a place that would rent us an apartment. And uh, we got a lot of help from, I never had anybody, you know, I'd always had movers come over and move me, but mm-hmm. now all these guys came over. I didn't know an AA and they moved us over to this apartment and, and uh, I went out and got a little old job and mm-hmm. I went to meetings because you know what? They told me at the 24 hour club, if I didn't go to meetings, Mm-hmm. over on this side of town, meaning the west side of Houston, mm-hmm. then they were coming to come get me and take me back to meetings over there at the 24-hour club. And I i am not really very bright, but I understood the difference in the meetings. But then one day, the, this job that I had gotten, uh, I didn't like it. Yeah. Because I had to do what somebody was telling me. And in my previous employment, I had working for myself. Yeah. And this guy, uh, he told me to get there at eight o'clock in the morning instead of five or something ridiculous, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, uh, I went out to 24 hour club and, and I sat down behind, beside this one guy that I knew and there's Wayne Jay's his name. And I, he's sitting there and, and around this round table and I'm sitting there and I want to tell somebody about my problem, about the demands that this man is making on me is, such a great salesman as I am. And mm-hmm. so he leaned down and looked at me and he said, uh, what's your problem? And I start my, and I started off, he just looked the other way and started talking guy on the other side of him. <laughs> so I sit there for a few minutes and he leaned back and he said, what's your problem? And I said, my wife. And he turned and started taking the guy next to him <laughs> in a minute. He turned back around. He said, what's your problem? And I said, alcohol. He said, yeah, don't you forget it. Oh, that's great. So that was the way that they treated me. And when I got treated really nice on this side of town, meaning west side of Houston. Yeah. And these people were all nice to me and thought I was a hero mm-hmm. having gotten shot. Half the people in the in the 24-hour club been shot. Yeah. So that don't mean that. I, had, I was in there when, when I was taking care of that place. Yeah. And I, I, this, I told this guy, I've been shot three times. He said, I got eight bullets still in my body. So <laughs> yeah. it, it, my yeah. story didn't flout, didn't go too good on the 24-hour club. Yeah, and, and it probably made people afraid of you on the west side of town. Oh, yeah, yeah. They said, oh, Bob, you're you're a tough guy. 24-hour club said, you ain't even got in the game. You don't know what tough is. Yeah, yeah, I get that. Because I, I remember when I first came into the program in 1988 and – uh, I would see you in that beginners meeting at the twelve fifteen beginners meeting, and you were, you know, when you talked about getting shot and stabbed, and and you talked real roughly. 
I I swear to God, there were people who got up and left. I, that, that's how scared people were in that meeting. And uh, I didn't know what to think. All I knew was I better stay seated. Um, but uh, so you were in this apartment and you were going to meetings on the west side of town. And this is between when does 1974 show up in this picture? And what happened to you that you had to come in again? What happened was I, we lived there in that apartment and then we got a house. I went to work. Yeah. I got let quit that little job. Went back in the insurance business that I'd been in for years. Mm-hmm. My business got really good. I started making a lot of money. And so the first thing we did was we went out and got a house. And we got cars and we got clothes mm-hmm. and we got everything else that goes with being successful. Uh-huh. Not realizing that my business is going to vacillate whether I want it to or not. Sure. So anyway, I was not preparing to be a regular person. I looked at the highest commissions in those months. And I said, that's what I'm going to earn. And that's what I fixed my budget to. Okay. Well, it didn't work that way. Yeah. And and so I was really having problems, but I wouldn't tell my wife I'm having financial problems, mm-hmm. even though I'm not drinking. Mm-hmm. And so what that that's not a system that works. Sure. You know, if you don't work and that makes you not work, then you don't work. And you just spiral down to the bottom. Sure. So in the Thanksgiving of 1973, I went out and got, I tell you, that was the first time I ever found out I was powerless over alcohol. Hmm. I I was in a meeting at this Travis club Mm -hmm. one Tuesday morning, got up from the meeting and I got in my car and remember, I'm not working, so I don't have any place to go. So I had to drive down South Main. And the next thing you know, I'm in a parking lot of a bar I used to drink in called the Little Club. Mm-hmm. So I'm in going into the Little Club, and I know I'm going to drink. So I get back in my car, and I go back out to the 24-hour club, mm-hmm. praying and hoping that they can put the story on me again like Wayne did that day. Sure. And 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 I will not drink again. But mm-hmm. I get out there, and people talk to me for four hours. Hmm. And, and one old man looked at me and he told me the truth. He said, boy, he said, let me tell you, he said, you're in the grips of a compulsion. You're going to have to go drink. Mm. And I said, I don't want to drink. He said, I didn't ask what you wanted to do. I'm telling you, you've gone too far down the road to come back without getting drunk. Mm. Mm. So I went out and got my car. I went to the bank, and got some money. I went out and got drunk. Now, nobody knows I'm drunk. And I get on the phone, I call my wife, and I say, honey, I'm drunk. And she said, what? Hmm. And I said, honey, I'm drunk. I'm going to San Francisco and live there. Your money's in your bank, and my money's in my bank. I hope you have a good life. And I hung up. Mm -hmm. So then I uh, had a couple more drinks. And, of course, being a good member of Alcoholics Anonymous, I've been, I found a guy that was in a, program at, at the VA hospital called the Valdez program. Mm-hmm. And I said, I'll take you back to that program so you won't drink. So we start out. While you're drinking? Do, yeah, while I'm drunk. I'm drinking. I'm drunk. There's a difference. Yeah, you're drunk. Yeah, I'm drunk. We get in my car. We go down South Main. We go out there and we find a bar and think, well, you can't drink once you get in that program. So we're going to stop this bar down here. We're going to have a drink. And, and then you can go to Valdez and, and I'll get on a plane and go to San Francisco. When I come to, 
I'm back in a parking lot of the first bar I went to. <laughs> oh my goodness. I've lost the guy that was my 12 step call. Oh boy. So then I, I go back in there and I get drunk again. Mm-hmm. And I go back out in the car and I come to it's four o'clock. The flights have all canceled. Mm-hmm. They're not but 400 p- motels in Houston, all on South Main. Yeah. And what do I do? I go home. Mm. See, I go home because that's where mm. the person is. That's where the force is that enables me to function like what I want to do. Yeah. 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 And and so I go ahead and land in bed. She said, what in the world is wrong with you? I said, I don't know. But you see, that was my first encounter with being powerless over alcohol. I didn't want to drink. I went to the 24 hour club and sat there four hours. Right. And what happened was I got drunk, but I didn't, you haven't heard me say I worked the steps. Have you? No, not at all. No, I haven't worked the steps. I studied the book. I've memorized the book. Uh I made 12 step calls. I was a great at socializing, but I hadn't taken the steps. I was just a drunk that was not drinking. Wow. So, okay, here I am. And I come back and I go back to doing the same thing. Mm-hmm. I'm socializing. I'm studying the book, mm-hmm. but I'm not taking the steps. Right. So now on January the 24th, I pick up a client. I take him to lunch and I know that I can't drink. I just drank after two years sobriety. I drank again mm-hmm. and I could not drink. Mm-hmm. And I learned so much. He ordered a drink and I said, I'll take one of those too. Hmm. And I got drunk and I got drunker and I took him to a really jazzy dorm at that time known as the Galleria roof. Mm-hmm. And we do all the things we do when we get up there. And, and, uh, so then next thing, you know, three guys at a table said something I didn't like. So I went and dove into their table. Mm-hmm. And the only thing that kept me from going to the police was my, client that I had with me, got me in my car and, and took me home. Mm-hmm. And when I get home, he walks me up to the house and my wife is standing there and he says, your husband should never drink. But if he ever does call me, I'm leaving town. He's the worst drunk I've ever seen. But that time I had seen the truth. Sure. That time I couldn't not drink. I found out I might not be an alcoholic, but I cannot not drink. Yeah. Don't do any good to tell me don't drink. Right. I'm powerless over alcohol. Yeah. That's what the first step is. I'm powerless over alcohol. My life's unmanageable. So that happened on the 24th. You stopped drinking. You you came back to AA. What was your first couple of months or even a couple of years like in the program? After doing the things that you were doing while you were still drinking, memorizing the book and doing other things, what was it like really being in the program? Well, I'd been to hell when I got shot, and it was exactly like hell. Hmm. Because I have a big mouth. I shot my mouth off. And now these people all came back and said, I thought you were going to stay sober. You can't stay sober. Hmm. And uh, I'm not saying this to be braggadocious, but they made me the the subject of meetings. Mm-hmm. They said, if yeah. you don't take the steps, you're going to be like Bob. Mm-hmm. Hey, Bob, how much sobriety you got? I got seven days today. Well, okay, Bob's got seven days today. Did you take the steps? No. 
But the, the morning I got up on the 25th, I went to my sponsor's house and I said, Jim, I'm powerless over alcohol. He said, thank God. Mm-hmm. I said, what should I do? He said, you should take the steps. Mm-hmm. I said, which one should I start on? He said, number one's good, Bob. Why don't you start there like everybody else? Yeah. And so I had taken the first step. I knew I would not, not that I was alcoholic, Mm. but that I was powerless over alcohol. Mm -hmm. I knew that the only chance I had was what was in those steps. I got to be honest with you, man. I didn't think that worked. Yeah. Yeah. I I did not. I thought I will do the best I can to take the steps as long as I can. So you had a sponsor at that time. Yes. And you were just, was, was it, deception or did he know all along that you weren't that you weren't doing what you needed to do he knew all along i wasn't going to stay sober but he stuck with you and so when you were finally ready to start to take the steps he was there for you yes that's amazing he got you working on the steps how long between when you started that was it until you felt like you had completed all 12 steps well i i took the first nine steps in about nine days, hmm. as many as I could, because geographically and, and otherwise, I couldn't get to people to make the amends of the ninth step. Sure. Mm-hmm. But all the people I could find. Now, let me tell you, I had some problems. I I, mm-hmm. I had a man that said he was going to kill me the next time he saw me. Sure. And uh, I, I went to make amends to him. Mm-hmm. But I didn't have the money I owed him, and that's why mm-hmm. he was going to kill me. Mm-hmm. And so I walked in his business, and I walked in, and I can't repeat what he said. But while he said it, he opened the drawer, and I knew what was in that drawer. Mm-hmm. And I turned around and started running, and I got to the front door of his business, and he's shooting holes in it. Oh my! And I never went back there. My sponsor told me not to do that. He said, don't go see this man. Yeah. A lot of people wouldn't see me. They say, Bob, I don't want to talk to you. I don't even want to see you. But every one of them, except that guy, asked if I'd done something about my drinking. I was the only person that didn't know that I was powerless over alcohol. Mm-hmm. So you went through, much like they did in early AA, you went through the first nine steps within a couple of weeks. Correct. How long did it take you to make the ninth step amends, those that you identified during those nine days? Were you able to do all of them right then, or did, was that a process over months or years for you? Well, it turned out to be a process over months and years because I couldn't see people all the time. I get it, yeah. Uh, I had a business partner, and uh, I owed him quite a bit of money. I He wouldn't see me. Yeah. Probably, I don't know, four or five years later. Uh-huh. I still hadn't paid in the money, but mm-hmm. he would see me. I, I made amends for what I had done. Yeah. And I paid him a little bit of the money. Hmm. Okay. And uh, through the years, we've made that right. That's great. You know, Bob, your story is so rich and colorful. It shows a man who went through an awful lot to get to AA. One of the, my, my purposes of this particular podcast was to ask people a little bit about now that they're sober, now that they're working the AA program, between when you felt like you had worked the 12 steps and today, what would you say were some of the greatest challenges that you faced along the way that perhaps your alcoholism presented to you the option of taking a drink and you didn't? Can you go into a little of that? I, since January 25th, 1974, mm-hmm. 
I've had a lot of things in my life happen to me, some good, some bad. I could say to the best of my knowledge, mm-hmm. I have never been attempted or thought about taking a drink. That's great. Yeah, let me let me give you some examples. Mm-hmm. My wife and I, my first wife and I, had been married 55 years when she died. Mm-hmm. She got me to AA, and she got me to a psychiatrist and got me in uh, a mental ward. Mm-hmm. And I was diagnosed bipolar, and I've functioned successfully mm-hmm. uh, since uh, eight, January, uh, September 15th. Uh, 1987, mm-hmm. I functioned successfully uh, with bipolar, mm-hmm. and and I <laughs> I got to add, I've never taken, I've never quit taking my meds either. Mm-hmm. That was one of the things that I thought I I could not survive. But mm. what happened was she mm-hmm. uh, she had uh, lupus and, and uh, she had rheumatoid arthritis mm-hmm. and uh, I've had, I had a horrible rage problem. Yeah. And I developed the rage problem as a defense mechanism because of fear. Mm-hmm. I wasn't afraid of getting hurt. I was afraid of looking like I was a coward. Yeah. Okay. So because of that, I developed a rage problem. Mm-hmm. And because of the rage problem, uh, I broke up my family. Yeah. Uh, I physically abused a 22-year-old granddaughter. Yeah. I won't go into the depths of that either, but but I thought I'd killed her, and I I hadn't. She was fine, mm-hmm. uh, but in doing that, I alienated my wife. That was the one thing mm. that she wouldn't tolerate was that I broke up the family when I did that. Yeah, that daughter and that granddaughter split off from the rest of them, and she couldn't stand that. So she filed for a divorce. Uh, mm-hmm. I I don't even know whether it went through or not, but she came to me. Mm-hmm. with two years left to live and said, mm-hmm. I, I can't take care of myself. Will you take care of me? So for the last two years of her life, I took care of her mm-hmm. over that period of time. And I watched her die very slowly, mm-hmm. very painfully. And uh, it, I, I don't know how I survived it without taking a drink, but never did I want to take a drink in that period of time. I remember that time, Bob. As a matter of fact, I remember you coming into our Thursday meeting every week and sharing about about that particular struggle and the outpouring of support and love for you during that time. I'd like to think that the fellowship may be the reason why you didn't drink in addition to the other things that you were doing. Is that a, is that a fair assessment? Yeah, I, I, I think this is a perfect example to me as I understand it, of God using people mm-hmm. to minister to someone who's having pain, me. Yeah. Yeah, that, my yeah. wife also. But I was going, and this was after she died, that, that I went through these, this period of time mm-hmm. and, and that I was ministered to by the people in that particular meeting on Thursday, the Thursday meeting we're talking about. Mm-hmm. And, and I felt... Like when I went in that room, I was enveloped by a golden mm-hmm. cover all over me mm-hmm. and that I was safe and, and that, that I got the feeling that God was in touch with me through the people in that room. Mm. But it was a miracle that that I took her back. Yeah. And that's not me. I, I'm not a 
at that time, let me rephrase that. At that time in my life, I wasn't a given person. Yeah. I was a taking person. And when she came and asked me to do that, yeah. uh, I have no idea why I said yes. And then when she got sick and I began to have to do the things that need to be done for people who are in the sick position she's in, uh-huh. I didn't think I could ever do that either, but I did. Mm-hmm. Then I, I was there the day that she died and, and held her in my arms mm-hmm. and, and knew that it was okay. Yeah. Cause I pulled a plug. Yeah. They said, we can put a respirator. And I said, I don't, I don't want that. Just leave her alone. Cause it's, it's too painful. Anyway. Yeah. She died. And I, it was kind of like I was taken across a, a golden bridge from her dying to where I am today. That's amazing. And this was bridge was built by God through the people in Alcoholics Anonymous. That's a, that's a beautiful way to look at it. And I recall when you came back, uh, right after she had passed, what a poignant meeting that was. You mentioned that, that you weren't the giving type person during the years prior to whenever she asked you to do that. But I remember you over an awful lot of years sponsoring men and going to meetings all the time and being encouraging and all that other. Did it feel to you at the time like you weren't? You have to you have to look at the motive. Yeah. All right, let's go back. And when I, the first day I was in the 24-hour club, that old man, Wayne, that was so mean, told me that a wino came in and sat down at, at that couch I'd been on. He said, take that man a wino cup of coffee and put a lot of sugar in it. Mm-hmm. I said, I don't want to do that. And this great big guy next to him turned around and said, what did you say? I said, a lot of, a lot of sugar. Is that what you told me to put in? <laughs> right. That's right. So I took it over. I'll never forget the man as long as I live. I became friends with him, and he committed suicide a couple of months later. But anyway, yeah. that was the beginning of my helping other people. Yeah. Now that my motivation was self-preservation, I didn't want George to do to me what he was threatening with his voice and his look to do to me. Mm-hmm. So I went over there and did that as I stayed sober in AA and took the steps. My sponsor said, now you have to help other people. Mm-hmm. And I said, I haven't taken all the steps. He said, I didn't ask you about that. I told you, you must help other people. Mm-hmm. And in those days, remember, I told you there were no treatment centers. Mm. We were getting hundreds. I got, I, yeah. I made five 12 steps calls in one day mm-hmm. and none of them stayed sober. Yeah. I stayed up till three or four in the morning because mm-hmm. that was the way we did it. Mm. But anyway, over that period of time, yeah, I, I became a conference speaker. Mm-hmm. I really, you got to remember that I have an immense ego mm-hmm. and, and this immense ego was eaten up on this. Bob's a great AA member. Bob is a great conference talker. Mm-hmm. And the motivation that you're talking about that you may see today or in over the last years is that now I care. Yeah. I never will forget the first person I cared for it. He was a casket salesman out of Liberty. Mm-hmm. And he was in a bar and we got to, step called a did and i walked in i said i'm here to get so and so and i said that's that man over there he didn't say man he said if you don't take him out of there mm-hmm. i'm gonna call and have the cops called on both of y'all mm-hmm. so he talked 
just like me all the time. Mm -hmm. He wouldn't shut up. Mm -hmm. and, and, and so I took him to a meeting. He talked. They made me take him out of the meeting and talk, talk, talk. Mm -hmm. Sure. And I took him home because no, no treatment centers. Right. So I put him on a couch. We had an extra bedroom. I already had the extra bedroom full. Mm -hmm. And I woke up and he's moving around out there. That means his whiskey's moved off. Right. It wore off. Right. And I sat there and I think, well, I'm going to lay here for let him hurt for a long time. Mm -hmm. And then I thought, boy, he sounds just like you. You think maybe he hurts as bad as you did. Mm. So I got up and I never, I can't remember his name, but he used to call me on his birthday every time he had a birthday. Mm. Anyway, then I began having a feeling for the people that I was helping. So that was a turning point for you with regard to caring about others. How long, how long had you been sober by that point that you had that, uh, that clarity? Well, I was in a house over there, uh, probably 10 years. So for the last 30, let's say the last 35, 37 years, your helping of other people had the caring element, whereas the first 10 years really didn't. That's correct. Yeah. Well, you can still do a lot of good for people caring for them. Uh, now, were you caring for them to the exclusion of caring for yourself? Or was the caring for them still part of the, your ego? The first part, I was, I wouldn't do go out of my way. I would go out of my way to show them off. Right, right. You know, I'd take them to a meeting and, and say, hey, here's the new guy I'm bringing in, you know, or something. But during the second, the, during, during the, the, the past, say, 35 years. Very, very slowly. Remember? Yeah. I, it wasn't a drop off. Right. It was a slide down a hill. I get it. Yeah. And the longer that I help people and at this time, uh -huh. the more I think about them and the less I think about myself. I've, I've noticed over the years, Bob, and, and one of the things I love most about you is you reach out to people in a way that is, although you'd think it was common, it is not as common. In meetings and after meetings, you're always getting guys' phone numbers. You're always calling men on their birthdays. And just that little bit of caring for a man in the program can make all the difference in the world. Every time I would get a phone call from you on my birthday, it, it, it really meant something to me. And especially these newcomers nowadays, to have a guy who's 47 years sober even know who I am when I'm a newcomer, much less get a birthday call and he knows my birthday. How the hell did that happen? Well, you probably got his phone number and his birthday uh, at some point along the way. That's the kind of caring that's really made a big impact in the meetings that you and I attend. I think we have to get back to motive. Right. Motive. Yeah. The motive I have in calling these people is, again, to get the reputation that I care about people. Yeah. And that I'm doing it to gain this reputation that that's wrong. But if I'm doing it because I really care about them, I and I'll, I'll tell you, when it made it change, I had about eight years sobriety, and mm -hmm. I got in a fight in traffic in Houston, and mm -hmm. and I hurt the guy, not because I'm tough or anything. I just kicked the door back in his face, and they were calling the cops, and, and I just served probation for being in another fight. And uh, so I went to my sponsor, and I said, what am I going to do? And he said, I have no earthly idea, but you need to do something because mm -hmm. you're not doing it. And and I'd been to a, a conference where the guy talked about meditation. I never meditated. And so I thought of that guy that talked about meditation and I started to practice meditation and, and I had a difficult time practicing meditation. Mm -hmm. Then when I went into the mental hospital, mm -hmm. I had a, a, a 
therapist in there that taught me to meditate. Hmm. So then I practiced the mechanics and I found all I was doing was just, and it took me five years, six years to, to really practice meditation for the benefit of others. Hmm. At first I began practicing the meditation in hopes of not getting in a fight right. and going to jail. And then I, I practiced the meditation because I could then talk about being able to meditate. Huh. And then I, I practiced meditation uh, because I wanted to be able to talk about how spiritual I was. Uh -huh. And then I began practicing meditation because I had found a way that I could communicate with God mm. that I didn't know about. Mm. I, I guess I can share this experience with you. I had gotten uh, to the point in meditation that mm -hmm. sometimes uh, God would come and communicate with me. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't mean in big sounding voices or anything. Right. Uh, the right. first time it was, I was in uh, in the darkness in a, in a tunnel. Mm -hmm. When I got shot and told you I died, yeah. I was in a tunnel. Yeah. Well, now I was in a tunnel, except the tunnel was dry. It was level. And I was in a golden light. Hmm. And as I stood there in the golden light, I thought, well, this is a way that, that my meditation gets me to hmm. But deciding that I might be able to modify it a little bit, I decided to stick my hand through the edge of the, the, the light. Mm -hmm. it, it didn't work anymore. Hmm. So I pulled it back inside and it worked. Hmm. Uh, uh, sometimes later, I, I uh, was in that tunnel I was talking about, always in the tunnel. Sure. I was in this tunnel. A thought came to me, not a big voice. What are you worried about? And I said, uh, well, I don't know what's going to happen. And this thought came back and said, you never have. Hmm. And I said, well, I know, but I thought I did. And the thought came back. Yeah, but you got, what's what got you in trouble? You thought you knew what was going to happen. Nobody knows what's going to happen except me. Huh. I said, well, I'm afraid. And he said, okay. I walked down this tunnel with you a little ways. And we walked out on this, <laughs> this golden light mm -hmm. there to the left. It's all the sins I'd committed. Yeah. All the bad things I'd committed. Mm -hmm. And up to my right, there was this golden door with the gold mm -hmm. just radiated from it. Mm -hmm. And he said, go up and open the door. And I said, I can't do it. And the voice came back to me. The thought came back to me. Why not? And I thought back and said, because I've done all those things over there. And he said, they've all been taken care of. Go up there. Hmm. And open the door. So I walked up the hill and I reached out for the door and I woke up. <laughs> oh my gosh. That's that's a beautiful story though. And look at how close you got to it. Yeah, but see, I still haven't gotten to it. Well, but that that even that level of understanding is way beyond what most people experience. It sounds to me like AA has made so many different things possible in your life. Uh and now I know that the challenges that you face. You're up in a, a rural part of the state right now uh, in retirement. Uh, how old are you now, Bob? I'm 88 now. 88. So you're you're up there where there aren't a whole heck of a lot of meetings, and plus it's hard to get out in the midst of this pandemic. But you're participating on, uh, on Zoom on a regular basis. And from my vantage point, the men in our meetings just love seeing you. And there's just something about you that brightens up brightens up the meeting and 
I've always appreciated what you've said, and getting to go a little deeper today has been been very, very cool. I, I want to, before we kind of wrap things up, I wanted to ask, from the standpoint of uh, the greatest gifts that you have gotten from the program, can you identify just a couple that when people look ahead at what they might achieve in their sobriety, were they to stay sober as long as you? What kind of gifts could they expect? Well, Ben, from the old 24-hour club 47 years ago, I've had had a drink and I haven't wanted a drink. Yeah. I, I, I'm blessed uh, as an alcoholic. The basis my, my practicing my alcoholism as I did back 47 years ago and, and today not having that problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I really am blessed in that, you know, it, it's something to have the disease that I had mm-hmm. that ruined my life and everybody around me mm-hmm. uh, that got me in so much physical problems and mental problems. Mm-hmm. And then to have that removed. Right. And that's been such a blessing. Uh, the other blessing that I have mm-hmm. that means so much to me is my relationship with God. I moved up here. I was a very arrogant, uh, self-centered man who used his success in his business uh, and his popularity in AA to bully people. Mm -hmm. I got up here, and I no longer had the income. My wife makes much more money up here than I do, and that left me. Mm-hmm. And and see, I, I I didn't even trust God. When I got up here, I didn't trust God. I trusted Bob that I could go out and sell insurance or whatever it was that I wanted to do. Uh, I got books published and all, I got all the things that I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. And, and and so mm-hmm. yeah. then I I couldn't do that anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I couldn't say I'm Bob, I'm a writer. I, I, I can't right. say that Bob works so much, makes so much money because I don't make it up here. And and I began to have to depend yeah. very slowly. God twisted me from a man who was total dependent on myself, insurance, writing, mm-hmm. AA popularity. What I, what I got out of that yeah. was soft power. But now I have lost the money. Yeah. Uh, that was very embarrassing to me. Right. Secondly, I didn't know anybody in AA up here. They did. I said, I'm Bob. They said, so what? Mm-hmm. I said, I've been sober so so years. They said, so what? <laughs> yeah. Okay. So then I lost that. Uh-huh. All the popularity that I had gained from being caring about other people, I wasn't received that way up here. And so we weren't in the ep- epidemic that we're in. Yeah. So I went to a lot of meetings, just like I did four or five a week. Right. I began making friends in AA up here, mm-hmm. and all of a sudden that was jerked out from under me. And in my arrogance, I wasn't going to get involved in a Zoom meeting because it involved a computer. And as an old man, I am very, very obstinate and yeah. and, and dealing with God even. <laughs> but the most magnificent thing happened to me up here. I got a disease called COVID-9, a disease of your colon. Mm-hmm. And and I was very sick for about nine months. I was in and mm-hmm. out of the hospital, and and I lost about thirty or forty pounds. And so then I got over that, 
And while I'm doing that, I fell and broke my arm. Mm. And my wife became the total support of me. Mm-hmm. She took care of me. She wow. did everything. Mm-hmm. My sponsor told me mm-hmm. 40, 50 years ago, he said, you can't depend on God until you depend on a human being. And that's exactly what happened. I depended on my wife yeah. totally and completely. And then the computer thing came along. I, I felt like I was forced. And I got in a Zoom meeting because Paul M. asked me to lead the, the Thursday meeting. And I got to see everybody and I really enjoyed that. And now I go to three or four Zoom meetings a week. Yeah. And and this has been the two greatest gifts that now that I'm a to, I'm in total dependence on God for everything. Okay. And then totally dependent on God. And so sounds to me like one of the greatest gifts that you've gotten, because what you just described was the gift of humility that finally getting to the point where you realize that to have that relationship with God, you had to have a relationship with the people. That That's an incredible awakening, isn't it? But remember this, took 47 years. We're not talking about coming in and taking a few steps and making a few steps because it says in the big book, it says, this is a lifetime process. And I bought that part of the program that I'm going to stay in this, not to be 47 years old, look what I've done, and have 47 years of progress. Mm -hmm. It's that I have been given this gift, but it took a lot of sacrifice, and, and I'm just grateful to have it. Yeah. Well, that's a great way to wrap this up, Bob. What you're talking about is, I think, uh, a very hopeful thing for individuals who are new in sobriety or people even with double digit uh, to make the most of every day and to persevere which is what you did all the, all those years and uh, I'm really thrilled that you were able to do this today I was hoping you'd be able to because when I started this and told some friends about it, I think I told you this people would say you got to get Bob you got to get Bob to do it you got to get Bob and of course I knew that you were a, a pretty popular speaker but I thought there's some questions that I've never never been able to get a straight answer about. So let me let me let me do it this way. So you're one of the reasons why I created this uh, this podcast. But um, I love you and and you're you're a big part of my life as you are for an awful lot of people that you and I both love and and care for. I love you, Howard, and and it's only by the grace of God that that I have what I have today. It's it's first of all, it's an effort on my part. But it's accepting that my part is not the part that's most important. Yeah, that's where we are right now that really counts. And uh, I'm so glad we got to spend this time together. And uh, once again, thanks so much for doing this, Bob. Thank you, Howard. Well, my friends, that's it for AA Recovery Interviews. I'm thankful you tuned in. If you've enjoyed AA Recovery Interviews, please share it with your fellow AAs, sponsees, friends, loved ones, and anyone else seeking a rich and meaningful listening experience. Tell them how to subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, and other podcast providers. I'd be grateful if you can leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. It'll help others find us. Visit our website, recoveryinterviews.com, where you can listen to every show, share your comments, and also contact us. If you want to email me directly, it's howard at recoveryinterviews.com. 
By the way, to get in touch with Alcoholics Anonymous, simply visit aa.org. The next episode of AA Recovery Interviews is on the way, so keep coming back. It'll be here soon.